Acts 1. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11 from the New King James Version. Acts 1, starting with verse 1, hear now the word of God. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, Ye have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And let's pray asking the Lord to teach us from Scripture this morning. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the word that you have given to us. We're thankful that it is your inspired and infallible and inerrant word. We're thankful that it is a light unto our path, and in it you have revealed to us everything necessary for faith and godly living. We pray that you'd help us to understand the things that we see and hear, and we pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts that are open and receptive to your message. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Acts continues the gospel of Luke. We see here in Acts 1.1 that it is directed to Theophilus, and Luke, writing here in Acts 1.1, says the former account I made, O Theophilus, of the things that Jesus began to do. So this is volume 2. And if you look at Luke 1, verse 3, you'll see that the gospel of Luke is also dedicated to Theophilus. And so the gospel of Luke emphasizes the work of Jesus Christ and his ministry. And then here in this second work, there is a focus on the works of the apostles. Indeed, there's a famous section here in verse 8 where Jesus commissions the apostles and sends them out. It's a great parallel passage 
to what we see in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where we're told more about the message they'll take and what they'll do, and here, where all they're going to go and how they're going to spread out to fulfill the Great Commission. Our particular portion, verses 1 through 11, deals with 40 days, 40 days from the resurrection to the ascension. And it's this portion of the ministry of Christ that I want to focus on, and we're told about seven different things here. First, the resurrection in verse 3, or the first part of verse 3. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days. Jesus offers proof of the resurrection in his appearance to the apostles. He does this over a 40-day period, showing himself alive after the Passion with many proofs. We know that the apostles had to be eyewitnesses of the raised Christ. We're told that specifically in Acts 1, verses 21 and following, where they're looking for a replacement for Judas. Acts 1.21, therefore of those, these men who accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. In other words, as the apostles would go out to preach and talk about the risen Christ, they had to be able to share that they had seen him, they had witnessed him. There had to be this special formal sense that you had first-hand knowledge of the risen Christ. And so in verse 8, where Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria unto the uttermost ends of the earth or to the end of the earth, these are people that could testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you might remember doubting Thomas. When some of the other disciples said that they had seen Jesus, Thomas knew better than that. And he said, unless I can see the nail prints in his hands, unless I can see his side, I will not believe. And then Jesus appears, John 20, 27, and says, touch my hands, touch my side. Don't be faithless, but be believing. Now, my guess is that when Thomas went out preaching, and according to tradition, we're told that he goes a long ways preaching the gospel, my guess is that he could speak with great enthusiasm to what it was like to have seen the risen Savior and to have seen the nail-scarred hands and to have seen his pierced side. They had to be eyewitnesses. And that's tremendous encouragement for us. We are mortal creatures. If the Lord tarries, we will all die. 
So there's tremendous encouragement to know that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits from the dead, and we have the promise of being raised to life anew because of what the Savior has accomplished. Resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection, is a fundamental Christian teaching. And you all know of liberal theologians who don't believe in the resurrection and have no faith and no hope. And it's a pitiful form of religion that they hold to. The Scripture teaches us, Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And that's the promise of God. And so here, Acts 1, verse 3, Jesus emphasizes the resurrection or shows proof of the resurrection. He showed himself alive, risen, and for that reason the apostles were willing to face martyrs' deaths because they knew of the hope of the gospel. Second, Jesus taught about the kingdom. And so at the very end of verse 3, you'll see a reference to the kingdom. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We could say that the book of Acts opens and closes with teaching on the kingdom. And so here in Acts 1-3, Jesus spends 40 days teaching about the kingdom. And in Acts 28-27, we're told that for two years, Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so teaching concerning God's kingdom frames the whole book from the start to the end. What do we mean by that? We know that God is king of the whole world. He's king of the universe. Theologians will sometimes talk about the essential kingdom of God. God is the creator of all. He's sovereign over all things. He reigns over all creation. God is king of all the earth, Psalm 47, 1. The Lord of hosts is the king of glory, Psalm 24, 10. The Father says concerning the Son, I have installed my king on Mount Zion, Psalm 2, verse 6. In the book of the Revelation, Revelation 19.6, we read that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which has such a marvelous summary of biblical doctrine, says this, chapter 23, that God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. So God is King over the whole of creation. But there's a second sense that we use the term kingdom, and that is to say that Jesus Christ is king of the church. And by this, we're talking about the mediatorial kingship. We know that 
the church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus Christ executes the office of a king, and this is simply taken from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26, which many of you learned, or maybe should have learned in your youth, and hopefully you're passing these profound theological teachings onto your children, that Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Jesus Christ is our king. One of my favorite scriptures is from Colossians 1.13, where we read that God delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. I'm no longer as a Christian in the domain of darkness, no longer in Satan's kingdom. God, through his sovereign power and the work of his Holy Ghost, has moved me into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and it is there that I have the forgiveness of sins and redemption and everlasting life. When we pray, thy kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer, we're taught that we're praying for different things, that the kingdom of Satan would be destroyed that the kingdom of grace would be advanced and the kingdom of glory would be hastened. Now let me note that teaching on the kingdom is pretty important in our passage. And so in verse 3, we're told that he spent 40 days speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then if you look at verse 6, they've got a question When they came together, the disciples asked, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? So there are different questions popping up about the kingdom. But I'll leave it at this point to say that Jesus labored to teach on the kingdom and the apostle Paul did at the close of Acts as well. Third, Pentecost, verses 4 and 5, and also In verse 8, Jesus predicts Pentecost. You'll notice that he gives to his apostles specific commands. Stay in Jerusalem, verse 4. Wait for the Father's promise, also verse 4, which promise Jesus had also given, end of verse 4. In fact, if you go back to Luke 24, verse 49 you'll see where Jesus promises that the apostles will be endued with power from on high. Jesus goes on to say that they will receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, verse 5, which is way better than John's baptism, and to say that the Holy Ghost will empower the apostles in their missionary task, in verse 8. Right? The Holy Ghost will come upon them, and they will be empowered to do their work. 
And then you can see how this unfolds in chapter 2. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go full Pentecostal on you, except that I think what I'm talking about is absolutely consistent with what we see in Acts 2. In Acts 2, verse 5, we're told that there were present in Jerusalem men from every nation under heaven. The nations, we're told, at least representatively, are gathered there. And you can see a list of those nations. Verses 9 through 11 list nation after nation, people after people on different continents that are there. And then as the Holy Spirit comes, they see this miracle. They know that everyone who's talking is a Galilean, but they are hearing the gospel message in their own tongue. In other words, they are not hearing undecipherable babbling. They are hearing the message of the gospel in their own language, in their own tongue. And so in Acts 2, we see this marvelous picture of how empowered by the coming of the Holy Spirit, the gospel was proclaimed to the nations. The apostles would be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and so wait right here, wait here in Jerusalem. Let me add that Luke gives special attention to the role of the Holy Spirit. So if you were to go through the gospel according to Luke, you'd see all kinds of references to the work of the Holy Spirit. If you were to go through the book of Acts, you'll see lots of references to the work of the Holy Spirit. There is attention to the work of the triune God and the proclamation of the gospel and people coming to faith. For example of that, look at verse 2. Acts 1, verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so Luke is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, even in the ministry of Jesus, and then the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower them in their own commission. Fourth, eschatological speculation. That is, speculation about end times. What's going to come? Verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So Jesus has been talking, he's been commissioning, and now there's a question, is it now? Actually, I'd say that their speculation deals with a couple of different things. Jesus hasn't even left yet, and there are already questions about what's to come. First, there's a question about the nature of the kingdom. Is it going to be restored to Israel now? And Jesus goes on in two verses to say that the message will go to the ends of the earth. I've always been partial to the old King James, which says to the uttermost parts of the earth, because you can't get any further out than the uttermost parts. And at the conclusion of the book of Acts, Acts 28, 28, we read that the Jews had rejected 
the message, and so the salvation of God was being sent to the Gentiles. The nature of the kingdom, not just a Jewish deal. And the timing of the kingdom, when? Is it at this time? You know, there have been lots of seasons of speculation about the end times through church history, and the church historian in me just wants to talk about that, but I'm not going to. But I remember in my youth, there was all kinds of speculation in the 70s. Oh, end times literature was hot stuff. And I remember reading one book about Henry Kissinger being the Antichrist. And I remember, as in seminary, we were talking about that. And every time I'm tempted to say, well, that clearly isn't the case, I'm reminded that Henry Kissinger is still alive. I think he's 100 or 99 or something like that. I'm not saying that he is. I'm just saying that over time, there's been lots of speculation about what might happen at the end. If you want another example, take a look at John 20. John 20, verses 21 through 23. No, excuse me, John 21, verses 21 through, picking up with verse 20. John 21, 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who had also leaned at his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out amongst the brethren that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if he will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So you can see people thinking about what Jesus said. Jesus is telling Peter, look, you've got your own route to go. You've got your own trip to travel. Right? And it's, it's going to end kind of gruesomely, right? And then he says, if John stays till I come again, what does that matter to you? you? You've got your own life to live. And so people afterwards are saying, that means that John won't die until Jesus returns. And of course, John lived to be very old. And you can just imagine over time people kind of looking to say, how you feeling, buddy? You know, the, the sicker he looked and felt, maybe that would be the sooner that the Lord would come back. And so John so patiently, so carefully says, Jesus didn't say this. What he said is this other thing, right? What's it to you if he does stay alive until I come back? But he's not promising that he's going to come back before John passes on. So we go to Acts 1, verse 6, we find this question, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. This isn't your business. This isn't your deal. You don't know. This is the work 
of the Father. The Father controls the end. This is fixed by his authority. It is certain. We don't know the day and time, but God does. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith has this marvelous summary, which avoids all of the food fights about eschatology. It says simply, chapter 33, God has appointed a day of judgment. And that's exactly what Jesus teaches us here in verse 7. That day is not known to men. Again, exactly what Jesus teaches in Acts 147. It's not known to men so that people will shake off their carnal security because you know exactly how people would live. If you said, I've I've got the inside scoop and I know that Jesus is coming back in 2030. And you would say, well, that gives us so many years to have a good time and live it up and then we'll get serious about religion. God purposes that people do not know the day and the end, but rather that they're always ready to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And that's the beautiful conclusion to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Always be ready to say, come, Lord Jesus. Jesus, come quickly. Fifth, Jesus gives a global commission, verse 8, and I expect this is a verse that is familiar to all of us. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You notice the transition here, but you, there's a transition from talking about God and the days that God has fixed and determined to moving in verse 8 to talking about what the apostles are supposed to do. The timing of the day is God's business, but you, empowered by the Holy Ghost, will be my missionaries to the end of the earth. The Father governs the end and sets the day and fixes the time, and the church is empowered to be ambassadors to the world. We can see many examples in Acts of the apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit to take out this message. The apostles have the promise of worldwide evangelization. It seems to me that Acts 1.8 not only gives a commission, providing a task to do, but also a promise of what the Lord will accomplish. And throughout the New Testament, there were examples of the nations being reached. Even in the book of Acts, we see the gospel proclaimed to the Ethiopian eunuch on his way home. We see the gospel proclaimed to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. You see the Macedonian man calling the apostle Paul to come over to proclaim the gospel in Europe. Throughout the book of Acts, we see examples of this worldwide commission. And in Acts 1, 8, we actually see an outline for the book of Acts. You'll see how the gospel is to progress in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, 
and to the end of the earth. And if you go through the book of Acts, you'll see the ministry of the apostles expanding in exactly that fashion. Let me give one example in Acts 8, verse 1. Here's a transition point in Acts. Acts 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They're in Jerusalem, they're going to Judea, they're going to Samaria. Within another chapter or so, you will see their reach extending even further. Or let me read for you two verses from Luke 24. You'll find Jesus giving the same encouragement in Luke 24, verse 46. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued from power on high. Sixth, in verse 9, we're told about the ascension. Acts 1, verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Jesus ascended to heaven. A cloud received him up out of sight. You know, there's this old prophecy in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, concerning the Son of Man who goes up to the Ancient of Days and receives the kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, his work, his exaltation was prophesied in Scripture. And the apostles watched amazed. If you look at verses 9 through 11, you'll see different words used for seeing and beholding, used five times. It's like they were watching and they were looking and they were amazed and they were staring. All of this consistent with how they were eyewitnesses. They had seen these things. They saw Jesus ascend into heaven. It is difficult to underestimate the importance of this doctrine of the ascension of Jesus Christ linked with the related doctrine of the session of Jesus Christ, how he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. In Acts 2, we find the apostles emphasizing this. Acts 2, verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he, himself, but he says himself, 
the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so listen to the proclamation from the Old Testament of the completed work of Christ that he ascends up to heaven and he is seated at the Father's right hand, a position of power and glory and exaltation, just as Psalm 110 predicted it. And that psalm is quoted throughout the New Testament. In Hebrews 8, verse 1, we read that Jesus Christ is seated at the Father's right hand until all his enemies are defeated. And this is a common theme in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is raised up and he's seated at the Father's right hand. Our Savior, our Lord, our King is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me read for you 1 Timothy 3.16. In this section, we have an early confession of the church. 1 Timothy 3.16, if you want to see a real simple version of what the church confessed and believed. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. There's an emphasis on Christ's coming, his incarnation, his resurrection, the spread of the gospel message, the faith of the nations, and Christ being seated in glory. And a final seventh thing from our passage is the second coming, verses 10 and 11. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now the disciples are standing there, and they're looking steadfastly, and you would be too. And then these men, these angels, promised that he would return in the same way. Now, there's something reassuring about that, that he is coming again. He is coming as he promised. I wonder if there's something a little motivational about that. Jesus had just given them a commission in verse 8, and so there might be this question of why, why are you just standing around looking up into heaven? Go back and wait until the coming of the Holy Spirit. I knew a, an old, wonderful minister friend who's now with the Lord, but he used to say, Jesus is coming, look busy. And that was kind of a joke because you're not just supposed to look busy, you're supposed to be doing stuff, you're supposed to be busy, but that always stuck with me. Jesus is coming, look busy, at least try, pretend, if nothing else, Jesus is coming again. 
Our Christian confidence is rooted in the promise of Jesus himself, John 14, 2 and 3. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. There's great confidence in that. There's great assurance in the words of verse 7, Acts 1-7, that these things are set by the Father's authority. He has determined the time. And then this reassurance of the angels in verse 11, he will come back. He will come back in the same way that you saw him go. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Now let me close by just making a couple of points of application from our text. First, see the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We oftentimes focus on the suffering and humiliation of Christ, and rightly so, because it was his horrible and shameful death upon the cross that he paid the penalty for our sins. But also remember that Jesus Christ was raised up. When we talk about the glory and exaltation of Jesus Christ, we think about his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, his being seated at the right hand of the Father, and his return in power and glory. Our passage is filled with reminders of the exaltation and triumph of Jesus Christ. We live today in discouraging days. It is easy to feel overwhelmed and hopeless and helpless. And so we should remember the exaltation and triumph of Jesus Christ who is seated in heaven above and is coming again in power and glory. Let me read for you a few verses in Acts 7. You are familiar with the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen had preached a sermon which was not well received. It is a powerful and wonderful sermon, but his audience is having none of it. Acts 7, verse 54. When they had heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, Stephen is a martyr. He was stoned to death as soon as he said these things, but his dying testimony was to see the Son of Man, to see Jesus himself in heaven above at the right hand of the Father. See the exaltation of Christ. And second, see the mission of the church. We have the fullness of God's word, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24 that they are to teach the nations all things whatsoever I commanded you. We have the fullness of God's word 
that we are commissioned to share with the nations. And we are called to the ends of the earth. And my people, 2,000 years ago, would have been at the ends of the earth. There's an old tradition that St. Andrew made his way all the way to Scotland. I can't prove that. I can't vouch for that. But a part of me likes to think that that happened and my ancestors heard him. I don't know. But my people lived at the ends of the earth. And the faithfulness of God's servants over the centuries took the gospel to this country and that continent and this region And the word of God and the gospel of grace was shared with the nations. And the work isn't done yet. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church has a wonderful history of mission engagement. One of the reasons why J. Gresham Machen had so much trouble is because he took a stand on faithful biblical missions. It got him in trouble with the liberal church, and the result was the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and the the result was a faithful missionary enterprise to go to the nations with the full counsel of the Word of God and the gospel of grace. Let me read for you in closing Acts 17, Paul's great sermon to the philosophers at Athens, preaching at Mars Hill to the philosophers. The Apostle Paul says this, Acts 17, verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the gospel message. We're thankful for Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins that we might have new life, be forgiven, and have life everlasting. We're thankful for your sovereign power to bring us to the foot of the cross and bring us to the Savior and your power in placing us in the church of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. We pray that as we think about the work of Jesus Christ, think about his sufferings, think about his exaltation and triumph, that we would be moved to be faithful to your call to take the message of the gospel to the nations, the message of salvation to the end of the earth. We pray that you would give us the power and focus to accomplish your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in closing to Psalter Selection 110.